Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 4. We are finishing up our study in the uh, book of Colossians today. Paul's closing remarks in this letter sort of pose a bit of a challenge. Um, There's 12 verses we'll look at. And he lists 10 different individuals with some comments and greetings related to each one. But there's not much in regard to theology, commands, or practical application that we can draw from this. However, since all Scripture is God-breathed, and we're told that all Scripture is good for teaching, rebuke, correcting, and teaching in righteousness, um, then that must mean there's a reason for this today, right? It'd be real easy to kind of overlook this in our study and just sort of move on and say, yeah, just a bunch of names. But... I believe that there's something to be found here. And it was actually kind of fun studying through it. So I'm going to share that with you this morning. But um, I'll spare you the deep theological discussions. Um, And we'll just sort of get into some fun um, reading through and looking at some of these individuals. You know, Hebrews chapter 11. Anybody know what that chapter is known for? Yeah, it's the Hebrews Hall of Fame they refer to it. It lists people like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, a whole slew of individuals that um, are known for their faith, and it's there to encourage us and to strengthen us in our own faith. Each of the individuals are exemplified by what it means to be people of faith. Well, as I look at this chapter here, I would think that maybe we should look at the end of chapter 4 here as Paul's Hall of Fame. Because he lists a number of individuals here, and there's some neat things about these individuals. Some we know more than others. But I think that as we reflect on these things, we will be encouraged this morning as we see their faith. All of them, except for one, were models of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. There's only one that serves as sort of a negative example to us here. And so all of them, except for one, can serve as examples for us. Um, So, as we've done throughout this series, I mentioned this last week again, every one of the teaching sessions I've decided to name in this series, ending with found in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I've titled this as the role models found in Jesus Christ. The role models found in Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and just look at some of these individuals here. We'll start with verses 7 through 9 of chapter 4. Paul starts with this, As to all of my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about our circumstances, and that he, he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So let's look at Tychicus here first. Tychicus was from Asia. Um, He's mentioned at least five times in the New Testament. Paul referred to him here as a beloved brother and faithful servant and a fellow slave in the Lord. And he did that for good reason. He was a long-time traveling companion of Paul's. He's one of the eight people that accompanied Paul to Jerusalem at the close of his third missionary journey. Anybody remember what Paul was doing on his third missionary journey? There's an important task that Paul performed as part of that missionary journey. He collected money from the saints to take that money to Jerusalem to help those who were struggling in Jerusalem with the persecution and other things. And Tychicus was one of the eight individuals that accompanied Paul on that mission to deliver those gifts to Jerusalem. 
According to the verse we find here, Ephesians chapter 6, also 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's also mentioned. And we find that he was with Paul during both of Paul's Roman imprisonments. The first one was in A.D. 60, and the second one, six years later, was when um, he actually sent Paul from Rome back to Ephesus during that second prison uh, time. And so Tychicus was with Paul for a good part of his traveling time, and again was with him both times when Paul was in prison. He was known as one of Paul's assistants. He worked much like Timothy did. Timothy was sort of Paul's right-hand man. And that was the way Tychicus was. When Paul was heading back to Jerusalem to deliver the gifts that he had collected from the churches, he made a stop in Philippi. But it says that he sent Tychicus, Timothy, and others, which included Luke, ahead of him to go to Troas. And so it appears that part of Tychicus's responsibilities, much like Timothy's, was when Paul knew he was going to another city, he would send those individuals on to those cities, probably in some form of maybe pre-ministry, or maybe even to help Paul find work as a tent maker, maybe scope out the city and other things. We're not really sure, but Paul would do this with some of these traveling companions. He would send them ahead of him to prepare for when he would arrive. It might have included finding places to stay, places to eat. And so Tychicus was one of those individuals. Tychicus also visited churches on behalf of Paul, much like Timothy, In fact, he carried Paul's letter to the Colossians, he carried Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and he even took his letter to Philemon. And so he entrusted Tychicus with carrying letters that he had written to some of the churches, which would obviously involve more travel. Part of his responsibility when delivering these letters was to explain how Paul was doing. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 again. He says, As to all my affairs, in other words, as to what's going on with me in life and in ministry, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. So one of the things that Paul trusted Tychicus with was to explain how his ministry was going, how Paul was doing personally. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. We see something very similar, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. But that you may also know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will be making everything known to you. And so Paul could trust Tychicus to deliver a good report, to fill in the details so that people might know exactly how he's doing. We find in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, he's mentioned again. You don't have to necessarily turn there, but Paul actually intended to send either Tychicus or another man, Artemis, to Crete. Remember, at Crete was where Titus was. Paul had sent um, Titus to Crete to care for the church there. He sent Timothy to Ephesus to care for the church there. And so Tychicus, at one point, Paul had thought about sending him to Crete to relieve Titus, probably so that Titus could come visit him in prison. He did the same thing with Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. It says that he sent Tychicus on to Ephesus, probably to relieve Timothy so that Timothy could then go on. And so we find this individual Tychicus who was a right-hand man to Paul. He's a minister, a fellow bondservant. He spent time with Paul in prison. He would send Tychicus out on his behalf to minister to the churches before he would get there or to maybe help establish what was going to take place there. And so he was a critical individual for Paul's ministry, again being mentioned over five times in the scriptures. The language that's used of him is that he was faithful, that he was a minister, a fellow bondservant, a bondslave. How about Onesimus? Anybody know who Onesimus was? 
Yeah, Onesimus, look at verse 9. And with him, Onesimus. Paul refers to Onesimus here as our faithful and beloved brother. But notice he also says, who is one of your number. Onesimus was apparently from the city of Colossus. He was actually the slave to another individual at Colossus named Philemon. So we learn more about him in Philemon. You can go ahead and turn to the book of Philemon there if you want. Philemon lived in Colossus, at least according to Philemon, or, um, the first couple of verses of Philemon. He hosted a church in his house with his wife and potentially his son. We think that um, Aphia was his wife and Archippus was probably his son. At least that's what history tells us. Philemon was a master. He had slaves, at least one, likely more, and that one of the slaves was Onesimus. And at some point, Onesimus had run away. He had fleed and he ended up somehow ending up in Rome. We don't know how or why, but he left Colossus and headed off to Rome, which is apparently where he met Paul. If you look at verses 10 through 22, we get kind of that history. So Philemon chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. What we know about the letter to Philemon is that Paul wrote the letter specifically to Philemon to encourage him to accept Onesimus back. But we'll see what that all involved here. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What does that tell us about Onesimus? Paul refers to him as my child. Paul uses that term affectionately for some of his disciples, like Timothy. And so we get our first impression that Paul was a mentor, if you will, or a discipler to Onesimus. He likely led him to Christ. It says... For my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. That's a rather strange phrase. Giving birth to. So what we glean from this is that Onesimus likely got saved under Paul's ministry and became a child of Paul's. Who formerly was useless to you. Why was he useless to him? Well, because he ran away. But now is both useful to you and to me. Pretty interesting thing to say. He would now be useful to Philemon, and he was also useful to Paul, which means this phrase was formerly useless, probably means more than just he ran away. Might not have been a very good slave. He certainly wasn't saved. And so he meets Paul in Rome and somehow is led to Christ by Paul and is now useful to both Paul and to Philemon. Look at verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, and look at this. Sending my very heart. My very heart. He had a tremendous fondness for Onesimus. Whom I wished to keep with me. Paul wanted to keep Onesimus with him. Why? Because he was useful to him. So that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Now we don't know if Onesimus was in prison. He may have been. Meaning that might be how Paul met him. Onesimus as a runaway slave may have very well ended up in prison alongside Paul. And now he's in prison with Paul potentially. But he's ministering alongside Paul. We don't know what that would involve. But Paul saw him as somebody who ministered to him. So Paul had those that would minister alongside him, like Timothy and Tychicus, that would go out on his behalf. It appears that Onesimus was somebody who ministered specifically to Paul. Whatever his needs might have been while in prison, Onesimus was there meeting those needs. 
But Paul says in verse 14, But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect my, or by compulsion, but of your own free will. So Paul is now sending Onesimus back to Philemon because he's rightfully the property of Philemon. But Paul would rather keep him there because he's ministering to Paul, but Paul didn't want to take advantage of Philemon. Philemon owned Onesimus. Onesimus owed him a debt of some kind. So Paul decides he needs to send him back. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back and get this back forever. Paul looked at Philemon or Onesimus' escape from Philemon as having a divine purpose, that he might ultimately end up in prison with Paul, being led to Christ, and now being able to be returned back to his master forever, meaning to be a Christian servant to him, not necessarily to be a slave. He says, verse 16, No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so we get this amazing picture here of Paul and his relationship with Onesimus, leading him to Christ, treating him as a child, having to be his own heart, being a minister to Paul. Look at what he says in verse 17. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It appears that either Onesimus stole from Philemon, or it's possible that that debt is just simply that he's not working there paying off his previous debt. But Paul basically says, accept him back as a brother just as you would me. And if he owes you anything at all, charge me for it. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay Not to mention to you that you owe me, even your own self as well. Paul may very well have led Philemon to Christ. We don't know. So Paul has to put that in there. I'll take care of whatever he owes you, but just remember you kind of owe me. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. What an amazing picture of Onesimus. An individual who had stolen from his master somehow, escaped, ran away, by God's divine work, ends up meeting Paul, is led to Christ, and now Paul is sending him back. But what does that tell us about Onesimus? You know, slaves during Paul's day, when they would escape, faced significant consequences for running away. When they were returned, they were often beaten, whipped, bruised, sometimes even put to death. And yet, here it is, Onesimus is willing to go back to Philemon. Had his life radically changed. But what an amazing picture of somebody here who was not just faithful in that regard, but somebody who ministered to Paul while he was in prison. A radically changed life, going from a slave to now a servant of Christ. So, he had become useful to Paul. He was now being sent back to Philemon to become useful to Philemon, but also a brother in Christ. Let's go on and see who else Paul mentions here. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, his cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So Paul now mentions three other individuals. All three of these men were Jewish co-workers of Paul. They were the only Jewish co-workers that Paul had at this point with him. In prison, They weren't necessarily all in prison with him, but while he was in prison, he only had these three fellow Hebrews that were with him. That's why he refers to them as from the circumcision. They were fellow Hebrews. 
Paul wrote that they had proved to be a comfort to him. I think we could all kind of appreciate and understand that. They would have been like Paul, the same heritage and with that Jewish background. So they would have been a comfort to Paul. But let's look at these individuals. Aristarchus, he's first mentioned in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, as one of Paul's traveling companions when Paul was... He was actually from, uh, from Macedonia, I think, if I remember right. But remember when Paul had, and his group had been seized at Ephesus in the riot? Paul wasn't seized, but others were. Remember the Ephesus riot? Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. He jumped down to verse 29, I believe it is. Yeah. We'll go to verse 28. Paul had been performing miracles, obviously, at Ephesus and... Those that made idols weren't happy. So they basically threw the city into a riot. And when they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed in in one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius, and then look who else? Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And so Aristarchus was one of the first individuals that had been grabbed in this riot in Ephesus and threatened with his very life. And we find here years later that he's still with Paul. In fact, Paul says that he's a fellow prisoner. He's now in prison with Paul. Now he continued with Paul on a number of his missionary journeys. Ends up with him in prison here. That's why Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. Church tradition tells us that he was martyred under Emperor Nero. That's all we really know of him. So we have this individual who was arrested, or, I'm sorry, grabbed by an angry mob in Ephesus, could have very easily been killed. But the fact that he's still with Paul years later and serving with Paul in prison tells us something about him. His commitment to Christ, but also his commitment to continue to serve alongside Paul. What about Mark? We're also told that And here he mentions uh, Mark, Barnabas' cousin. He said he sent some kind of instructions regarding Mark back to the Church of Colossus. We don't know what those instructions were. But he was Barnabas' cousin, and he's also referred to as somebody else. Anybody else know what he was called? What's that? He was Barnabas' cousin, um, but his name was John Mark. So we know him as Mark. We also know him as John Mark. He was the author of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, He traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And if you remember, things did not go too well. Do you remember what happened when they decided to get ready? They pack up and they're ready to go on their second missionary journey. Do you remember what John Mark had done during that first missionary journey? Yeah, he abandoned Paul. Um, Now, I get the impression, you know, Paul had some high expectations probably. Um, And you remember that the the, the disagreement between... um, Barnabas and Paul was so severe that they decided to split up. And so Paul ended up taking Silas with him. Barnabas took John Mark. And the problem was that Paul apparently didn't believe that he could rely on John Mark. You know, remember, Paul traveled with these companions because it wasn't just Paul going out and willy-nilly doing his things. It was an enterprise of sorts. And what I mean by that is it was organized. 
Paul had these men that would travel with him, that he relied upon. Some, in the case, as we saw already, Onesimus might minister to him, but others ministered alongside him, and he would send them out on his behalf, sometimes going back to visit the churches that he had been to, other times going ahead into cities that Paul was going to visit. And so from that respect, they were assistants to Paul, and that was necessary for Paul. You can imagine, it's not like today where I go online and I, you know, I'm going to Kansas and so I'm going to pick my hotel and pick, you know, even my company even has a portal we go to that handles all that for me, you know, and I pick my car and I pick my hotel and I pick my airfare and I just show up at the airport. Back in Paul's day, somebody had to arrange that type of stuff. Somebody had to arrange where are we going to go, how far are we going to go, what are we looking at for, you know, the path to get there and what, where are we going to stay when we get in there and where do we buy food and is there a place where I can set up my, my tents to, to sell tents. All that stuff stuff had to be taken care of while at the same time somebody had to be in the synagogues preaching and teaching and so Paul would rely on these men and John Mark who was brought along to do that for, Mark, for Paul bails on him you can see why Paul would be like no no Barnabas you're nuts man I can't take this guy with me but Barnabas you remember what his nickname was son of encouragement and so he's like come on Paul we've got to give him another chance Paul says uh uh-uh. uh ain't going to happen on my watch so they split up Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark here. However, I want you to turn to Philemon, chapter 1, verse 24. We were just there. But, Look at verse 24 of chapter 1 of Philemon. We'll start at verse 23. And Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do... Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my fellow workers. So we find that Paul not only mentions John Mark here, but refers to him as a fellow worker. So at some point, Paul and John Mark reunite, and John Mark is now working alongside the Apostle Paul. So we go from Paul saying, I can't trust this guy, I'm not taking him with me again, to now he's working alongside Paul once again, turn to Second Timothy chapter four. We get something even more impressive. Second Timothy chapter four. Jump down to verse eleven. Remember, Paul's last letter, he's in prison, it's shortly before his martyrdom. Paul knows the end of his life is near. He writes his letter to Timothy, who happens to be away at Ephesus, and he gives Timothy some final instructions, and look at what he tells Timothy to do in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. And look at this. For he is useful to me for service. Think about that for a minute. We go from John Mark, who abandons Paul, to now Paul saying, He is useful to me for service. And one of the last people he asks for at the end of his life is bring John Mark to me. What does that tell us about John Mark? We know that he also spent some time with Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, jump down to verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you, you greetings... And so does, look at this, my son, Mark. What does that tell us? It tells us that John Mark spent some time with Peter, which actually matches historically because it is believed that as the author of the Gospel of Mark, that John relied on Peter for the details. 
So what history, or at least what tradition tells us, is that Peter and John Mark traveled together for a while. And it was Peter who shared all the details that he wrote in his gospel. So some had referred to the gospel of Mark as the gospel of Peter. Written by Mark, but it's really the witness of Peter. But it's interesting here that Peter refers to him as son, which means there was likely some mentoring and discipleship going on, much like when Paul refers to Timothy and and others as his sons in the faith. And so it appears that likely what happened is he has this failure, if you will, early on, abandons Paul, goes with Barnabas, somehow ends up with Peter for a while, where he is mentored by Peter, and then somehow ends up back with Paul, spends time with Paul here as Paul is in prison, as he's writing the letter of write letters to Colossians, and then separates again for a small time, likely because he probably sent John Mark somewhere, and then tells Timothy, bring him to me because he's useful to me. What a story of redemption. Is that not pretty awesome? And so we see this amazing picture of John Mark. There's another individual, a final one mentioned here by Paul in, in these few verses, a man by the name of Justice. We don't know anything about him, except that he was Jewish. But the thing that's interesting about this is you notice what he was called. Verse 11, and also Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, Justice wasn't actually his name. His name was Jesus. He might have been Mexican for all we know. No. His name was Jesus. I should say Jesus. Is that right? (laughs) His name was Jesus. But he had a title. Justice is actually a Latin term, and it actually means upright or just. And so much like Barnabas being called, you know, an encourager, son of encouragement, Justice was called upright and just. He was given a title. You might call him Jesus the just, Jesus the upright. So it gives us a clue into his character as well. He was apparently an upright, just individual, so much so that they gave him a nickname or gave him a title. Let's move on. Verses 12 and 13. We learn about another individual here. Epaphras. Verse 12. Epaphras, who was one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. We've already learned about Epaphras because we talked about him in week one. He was the one that ultimately led the Colossians to Christ. Paul here says that he had a deep concern for the Colossians. He was one of them and partly because of that he had a deep concern for them. But also for the sister churches that were in the area. Remember there were three of these churches, Colossians, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And it appears that he had been the primary minister to those three specific groups of Christians, most likely leading them to Christ because Paul tells us that they first heard the gospel from Epaphras. Turn to chapter uh, 1, verse 7. He says, Just as you learned it, which was the grace of God and truth, just as you learned about the grace of God and truth, the gospel, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow and bondservant who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. We don't know how Epaphras came to know the Lord. It it is suggested that he might have met Paul when Paul was in Ephesus, that he maybe, because they were fairly close in proximity, had traveled to Ephesus. 
met Paul, was brought to Christ, and then on Paul's behalf went down to Colossus, Hierapolis, and the surrounding regions, and ultimately planted some churches, led some people to Christ. Paul has nothing but praise here for him. He's got a deep concern for you, for all those in the other churches. Calls him a faithful servant. Says that he always labors earnestly. That he prays for them on a regular basis. And what's his prayer? That they may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. What a tremendous homage that Paul pays to Epaphras here. Now it's generally believed that the reason Epaphras was in Rome with Paul at this time was because he was concerned about what was happening at Coloss. So he traveled that long distance to go all the way to Rome to ask Paul for advice on how to handle what was going on at Coloss. And we can only assume that as Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians and sent that letter back in the hands of Epaphras, that he now enforced those things, helped him understand those things and put them into practice. So in many respects, you might say that Epaphras was much like their pastor. He goes on, he mentions two other individuals here in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Damas. Luke was a Gentile. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. The only Gentile author in the New Testament. He was apparently quite educated. Paul refers to him here as the beloved physician. That's why we know that Luke was a doctor. In Philemon chapter 1 verse 24, Paul refers to him as a fellow worker, which means that he ministered alongside Paul. One of the things we know from his writings is that he was extremely, um, likely an extremely intelligent individual. His Greek is some of the best Greek in the New Testament. Um, it kind of resembles the um, kind of the classic Greek, and he had a huge vocabulary. So he appears to have been highly educated, which would seem to fit with his role as a doctor. Um, based on what we see in the Book of Acts, he had a knack for researching and recording history. So he was not only a doctor but a student of history. We see in his own writings there that he carefully researched things. He spent quite a bit of time traveling with Paul. In fact, we see that throughout the Book of Acts. Um, At this point, when he's with Paul at um, Rome, he had been with Paul for about 10 years or so, as best we can estimate. He met him in Troas around A.D. 51, when he joined Paul on a second missionary journey. And we know that when we get into the book of Acts. If you go back to the book of Acts with me just briefly, go to Acts chapter 16. What you notice in the book of Acts is that as... Luke writes it, sometimes he refers to they or them, and sometimes he refers to us or we. And that changes as you go through the book. And it's because Luke wasn't always with Paul throughout the book. There were times where he would meet up with Paul, travel with Paul for a while, and then they would separate, and then later on he would be joined by them again, and so you find the language changes from they and and them to us and we. And we see that when we look at chapter 16. You look down at verse, uh, I think it's verse 10. Yeah, above, above that, earlier up in um, chapter 16, you look at verse um, 6, for instance. They passed through Phrygia and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not um, permit them. Well, then he jumped down into verse 10. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding 
the gospel, or that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out the sea from Troas, we ran, and so we see that transition there, that Paul apparently met up with them in Troas there. And so again, as you go through the book of Acts, you see that Luke traveled with Paul fairly significantly, but wasn't with him all the time. And we don't know the reason for that, but we know that he traveled with him quite a bit. So much of what we find in the book of Acts is a first-hand account of Paul's ministry, because Luke was there with him. Which, again, matches what Paul says when he refers to him as his fellow minister. So he traveled with Paul quite a bit. Um, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, because, again, we've, we've touched on this just briefly here. This, to me, is one of those gut-wrenching statements that Paul makes. But 2 Timothy, again, the last letter Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Notice what it says there. Only Luke is with me. What's gut-wrenching to, to that for me is I compare so many of today's ministry and Christian leaders and the following that surrounds them and the recognition and the notoriety and oftentimes the wealth that comes with that. They don't die alone. They don't die surrounded by family and friends and people. And what we find here is before Paul is about to be martyred, he's in prison in Rome, and he says, only Luke. One guy is with him there, and who does it happen to be? Luke the physician. Probably wasn't an easy thing. How many of us today would go hang out with prisoners? Especially in a day like this, because Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel, and here Luke is right there by his side. There's danger even for Luke, but yet, only Luke is with me. Especially in comparison to what he says about Damas here. Damas is not a great example. Unfortunately, Damas served as a negative role model for us. Paul doesn't say a whole lot about him here. He does call him a fellow worker when he writes to Philemon. However, later in his life when Paul is in prison, what do we learn about him? Notice he says in verse 9, Make every effort to come to me soon for Damas, having loved this present world, has deserted. That's the word for forsaken. It's the same word Jesus used on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he basically says, Damas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Notice the reason he gives for Damas leaving him, for forsaking him. There's another individual he mentions here, Cratians, who went on to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Doesn't say this about them, which means they likely went on for ministry purposes, but why was Damas no longer with him? Why did Damas leave him, forsake him? There's more implied there than he just disappeared to another city. He left Paul and likely left ministry. Completely turned his back on Paul. Why? Having loved this present world. Remember what 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John also says elsewhere that they went out from us. Why? Because they weren't part of us. And so we have this man, Damas, here, which I'm sure was heartbreaking to Paul to have to pen these words. Because again, when he wrote the letter to Philemon, he says that Damas was a fellow servant along with him. Not anymore, at the end of his life. And so Damas serves as a negative example for us. Just a couple more here, verses 15 through 18. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. 
When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed for the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So these last two individuals we know very little about. Nympha, she's only mentioned this one time in the whole entire Bible. Now there's a variant in the Greek text. It's not clear whether Nympha was a man or a woman, but here in our text, in most English translations, it's translated as a woman. It appears that she lived in Laodicea since Paul mentions here, immediately after sending greetings to the brothers who lived there, he mentions that. And she also hosted a church in her house, which likely means that she was a woman of relative means, because typically in Paul's day, the homes were not big enough to host a church. And so their their churches would have been hosted in homes of the people who were fairly wealthy, or at least well off, had a nice home. And so the only thing we can assume about her is that she likely was a woman of means and was a woman who opened up her house for the church which again you know we, we just think oh just that's hospitality which it clearly is but there's a danger in doing that especially in that first century you know, think about today what happens in China you know the underground churches you know you open your doors up and what do they do they come busting down your door they look for you you know happens in North Korea as well happens in parts of Africa with the Muslims attacking the Christians who simply are meeting in their homes. And so there's likely a certain amount of courage as well that we see in her. The last individual he mentions here is an individual named Archippus. It's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. If you go back to Philemon chapter 1, it's the only other place. Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, To Philemon, our brother and fellow worker, and to Athia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Many scholars believe that um, Athia is Philemon's wife and that Archippus might have been their son, partly because of the way this is structured and because of the fact that um, Paul groups them together the way that he does there. And when he says, And the church in your house. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible that he might have been the son of um, Philemon. But he calls him a fellow soldier there, which means Paul saw him not just as a nice guy, but somebody who ministered as well. Somebody who was fighting the good fight. In fact, we even see that here with this challenge that he gives him in verse 17. Some look at verse 17 as a rebuke, meaning that somehow Archibus wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, but... I'm going to read that for you and and just tell me what your first impression is. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. When you first hear those words, do you think rebuke or do you think encouragement? I think encouragement as well. And it's rather interesting because when we see it in that light, that reminds us of who Paul is. I remember what he told Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We know Timothy was a faithful faithful servant, but he told Timothy, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That wasn't a rebuke of Timothy. That was Paul's encouragement to Timothy. I think that's what we see here with Archippus as well. That Paul was simply sending him a very encouraging note. It reminds me of my own pastor. When I receive letters from Pastor Crenstill or emails, they're they're not quite as frequent. He's 95 or 96 now. Um... 
But when he sends an email, I think I might have even shared some of these with you at one point, he writes with the scriptures. Meaning, almost every sentence has a scripture reference to it. Or he uses language right from the scripture as he speaks and as he talks. And some of it is very bold and very forward. And if you read it, you looked at it, you might be tempted to say, does he think I'm not doing what I'm... But that's not at all what he intends. And when you see it in that light, it's just this tremendous encouragement of fight the good fight, stay in there. And that's exactly, I believe, what Paul is doing here as he mentions this last individual, Archippus. Encourages him as a good soldier to take heed of the ministry that he's been given, assigned to him, that he might ultimately fulfill it. Quite a stark contrast to what happened with Damas, is it not? Paul finishes his letter with just a very simple greeting. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul... um, typically didn't write his own letters. He had a scribe who would write them um, as he would dictate. And that's reasonable because paper in those days was a commodity. And so you typically would have somebody very trained in writings. You're not wasting paper and other things. Um, and so that was fairly common that you didn't write your own stuff typically. You would have somebody write it for you as you dictated it, somebody trained in that. But he did sign it with his own hand. Another place he says, look at I'm signing this with my own hand. What big letters I'm using. Paul, we don't know what his ailment was, what his thorn in the flesh was. Some have said that he might have been blind, had trouble with his eyesight, which may explain why he's got a much bigger signature. Or it could simply be that Paul was not trained that way in writing. And so when he would sign it, the writing would be bigger. We don't know. But he gives them this nice greeting here, challenges them to remember his imprisonment, which likely means pray for me. And then lastly, grace be with you. So, I'm just going to rip down through what we've just seen, because as I started thinking through this, um, a thought that came to mind is that these individuals that we just went through I'm just going to call them normal, ordinary, everyday people. These were not trained missionaries, paid missionaries, pastors and others that made their living by the gospel. Paul would be the closest, meaning that Paul, you know, he worked with his hands as a tent maker, but he also um, was able to take advantage of the gifts and offerings that were given to him. He tells us there were times where he had plenty and times where he was still in need. Okay, but even Paul wasn't financed per se, meaning these people were just everyday, ordinary people whose lives were radically changed by Christ and became ministers alongside the Apostle Paul. So just listen to this for a moment as we just summarize these individuals again. Tychicus was a seasoned traveling companion of Paul who served him faithfully through multiple missionary journeys, In both of his Roman imprisonments, Paul trusted him to deliver his letters. He encouraged the churches to report on his condition and to fill fill in for Titus and Timothy when they needed to travel to see Paul. That was Tychicus. Onesimus was a fugitive slave who, after coming to faith in Jesus, not only served Paul faithfully in prison, but was willing to do the right thing and return to his master, Philemon. He had apparently wronged him in some way, And after running away and coming to Christ, he was willing to go back without knowing what he might ultimately face. Tychicus, Aristarchus, they were faithful traveling companions of Paul in spite of the fact that 
They nearly paid with their lives and were seized by the angry mob at Ephesus. Ended up spending time with Paul in prison. Mark, great example of second chances of redemption, right? Abandons Paul in his first missionary journey, but somehow earns Paul's trust back. Probably not on his own, but through the mentoring of Barnabas and Peter. Tells us how important forgiveness is and a willingness to wrap your arms around somebody and to help them to grow and mature. Give them a second chance. He was so useful to Paul by the end of his life that he's the one that Paul says, Timothy, when you come, bring John Mark with me, with you. He's useful to me. Jesus, who's called Justice, just an upright man, known for his rightness, for his willingness to stand up and be faithful. Think about Epaphras. If it wasn't for Epaphras, Paul wouldn't be writing this letter, would he? His commitment to evangelism and preaching the gospel led to the salvation of who knows how many citizens of Colossus, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. He not only led them to Christ, but he taught them faithfully, Paul says. He prayed for them diligently, and he cared for them deeply. If it weren't for Luke, we wouldn't have a history of the early church. Here's a physician, likely could have made an incredible living as a physician, but what does he do? Travels with Paul, putting himself in peril at times. He too was entrusted by Paul as a traveling companion, a co-worker of his, and one of the few people who was still with Paul at the end of his life. We can even learn something from Nympha and Archippus. Nympha was an example of hospitality, opening her home to provide a place for the church to worship, fellowship, and even learn. Archippus reminds us of the need to take the ministry that the Lord has given to us seriously and to fulfill it. Then we got Damas. <laughs> Don't be a Damas. He shows the example of the dangers of loving the world and then forsaking what God has called us to. What an amazing list of individuals. You know, again, I'm, I'm reminded that God puts these people in here for us to serve as examples. You know, but it's, it's a way of honoring them, I think. And we have all these individuals here that God has honored by letting us know who they were and what they did. And I think it would be a mistake for us to simply overlook that. So again, there's not great marching, marching orders here. There's no great theology here. But what an encouragement. I think about this. When I think about us someday being in heaven, it's going to be really cool to meet some of these people, is it not? They gave up so much. And again, I look at this and I think, this is the church. This is ordinary people that gave up quite a bit. Think about what they did traveling the way that they did, committing themselves the way that they did. And that is what the church is supposed to be about. You know, the, when we're looking at what's going on in the world around us today, when we think about what's happening in Israel, we don't, we don't really know what this is going to lead to. Things can escalate really quickly. And like some are saying, this could be it. We don't know. Meaning, things could escalate very rapidly and we could be finding ourselves looking at what's described in the scriptures. The church is not going to survive because we have paid pastors and ministers and evangelists and church buildings. They're important. I'm not discounting that. But you know how the church survives? People sitting right there. It's people like this, who as part of their lives minister. That's critical. When we think about what's happening in other parts of the world, the church is growing fastest where you don't have all the big buildings and all the paid staff and all the books and the radio and the TV and all that. I'm not saying, again, those are not important. But the church is built on people like what we just saw. 
people that were brought to Christ and said, I've got a heart to minister, which means that's what our call is, folks. Every one of us is out and about. Every one of us is out every day living with the unsaved. Okay? We're God's church. We're the ones that are to minister. And so again, I look at the list of people here and I think, Paul mentions them to honor them because we look at the Apostle Paul and think, what amazing things the Apostle Paul did. But we learn from something like this that it wasn't just the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul depended on these people. He could not have done what he did without them doing what they did. Just like Dustin, me, standing up in front here, Renew is not about what we do. We're a church family and it's imperative that the workers work. Amen?